Okay, roll up my sleeve, strip off my sweater, ready to go. (laughs) Samadhi, here we come. All right, are you ready, John? All right, Um, does anyone have any questions from last week or the two weeks ago when we were last together? Okay, we'll just plunge right in. I think we're still in the samadhi cycle and we're going to be here for a long time. This one, 3.11, is where we're starting. As mental distractions dwindle and one's focus becomes more and more one-pointed, so one's inner identification with the samadhi state increases. Um, you know, this is another uh, verification of what we've been talking about for a while here, that whereas we tend to see samadhi as an all-or-nothing situation, that the way Patanjali is writing about it, it's that you enter into that state and then you keep on progressing for a long time. Um, the, you know, what that reality really is for us, but that's, that's also part of what, let me just try to say this again, Somehow these issues are not such big issues now, but they have been issues, and so maybe it's worth just spending a moment on it. Who can help you spiritually is the question that sometimes people ask, and they want to know if someone is a fully self-realized master. There used to be this big sort of thing that would go on at Ananda where because Swamiji refused to declare himself self-realized, then people would say, well, therefore, you know, why should I trust him? Sort of energy like that. I'm going to just go quote, straight to master. Later on, Swamiji started talking in, when he started writing later. He, he talked about the nuances of different um, states of realization that you can, you can have a state of self-realization uh, being just a jivan mukta, just a jivan mukta, you know, all those different points. But in other words, just as this world is very nuanced, that world becomes very nuanced too. And you know, people of great realization, they still have different levels that they're going through. So here he writes, one's inner identifications with the samadhi state increases. What I read about that, Swami says, this seems clear enough, sure. Um, The more the samadhi state becomes your reality, the more absorbed in it you become. But I was thinking of it also just in a very small way, that we, we have to realize that it is always just a question of what we identify with. And even if one moves into, is able to move into that state of cosmic consciousness, do you really define that as yourself? So according to Patanjali, as mental distractions dwindle, so apparently there's even the possibility of being mentally distracted, none of this has a practical use in my own life, maybe in yours, but um, Patanjali took the trouble to write about it. I was also interesting and therefore it is uh, it's an important thing for us to understand I think what it helps us do is not um, not be so black and white about our understanding of the spiritual path but just realize that this is all very subtle and it it works like this it was interesting uh, I've been looking at lots of old files and it was interesting that when Swami had his first Brighu Brighu reading Brighu identified him as a teacher of Patanjali's um, teachings that was how uh, he was described. And it just was interesting because we think of it in so many different ways, but I thought it was interesting. Of course, Brigu wrote, maybe there weren't a lot of others. <laughs> maybe Brigu was the, uh, Patanjali was the one at that point. But still, it was because 
Um, Bhrigu referred to things that didn't exist, like Kriyananda himself didn't exist when Bhrigu lived. So it wasn't like Bhrigu was limited to what was already part of his yuga. But to identify Swami was that he taught Patanjali. Which is just like, this is the definition. This is the Yoga Sutras. So all of this long section about what happens after you reach Samadhi and how you work with all of that is just part of us understanding because sometimes, okay, this, this is how it, just even knowing this, whether, it, whether we actually use these sutras or not, it just helps us sort out who among the people who assert that they're teaching spiritual things are actually orthodox in what they're teaching. Because people make up so much and, and we can get taken in or people we care about get taken in. And it's not that people are being evil necessarily, but they're making it up. Whereas when you have Patanjali as your source and you understand how he describes even the states of enlightenment, even the states of, of higher consciousness, when you have people of lesser experience, even if well-meaning, who are simplifying it or changing it, it helps for us to have a clear idea, at least, of what the orthodox principles are. And they're orthodox, as Swamiji was saying in some other thing he was talking about. He says he's, he's very orthodox. He's not orthodox to institutional dogmas, but he's very orthodox to the everlasting um, and, and righteous truth. Because you have to be. You can't be, unri- you can't be unorthodox to that. It's just not... Um, it's not an option. Okay. So then 3.12 says, When the waves of past and present impressions become smooth, there comes complete inner calmness. So we're still working on this. When mental distractions dwindle and your focus becomes more one-pointed, when the waves of past and present impressions become smoothed, there comes complete inner calmness. We've talked about earlier, and then we're going to go into this now, about how um, you, know, you have to review all your incarnations. That's what we were talking about the last time I was here. And starting from feeling that was highly irrelevant, we were actually able to move into some very practical ideas. So the waves of past and present impressions. You know, these impressions are so... Um, uh, you don't even know you're being influenced because we're so accustomed to being that way that we do not consider it to be an external influence. We simply consider it to be the way things are. I mean, it, it's, it's a very, by comparison, small example, but that's why it's so helpful to travel or be exposed to other cultures because you simply find out that what you always thought was the way things done is simply not the way things are done by perfectly fine human beings in other places. They just see it really differently. This is only slightly related, but it was an interesting fact. Again, I pulled out of old files today. Swami was talking about America. And you've heard him say that America has this bad karma, it has to pay because of way, the way we treated the American Indians. He added that the karma is not as bad as it could be because America doesn't identify with the way we treated the Indians, which is that we don't take pride in the way we treated them, we don't define ourselves as being tough because we wiped out a whole civilization or anything like that. We had another goal and they were in the way, so we kind of trampled over them. And that was bad karma. But he mentioned that it's interesting that karma is being mitigated to a very slight extent as people 
adopt the American Indian attitude toward the natural world. He said, and the extent to which people are coming back around to embracing their way of life, at least their principles. We don't have to go out and really live the way they live because it's different. But that's a, 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 re- a slight restoration, you know, not a massive one. He once said at one point that all of us um, hippies out in the country had, were the Indians who were born into wealthy white families so we could buy back our land. That was actually how he put it. And so we were out there buying back our land that had been stolen to us, or we had stolen it ourselves, who knows. But anyway, like that. But all of that that I was trying to say was that we just carry so many of these past impressions with us, and they cause us in all ways to respond. And we're we're just constantly responding according to those past impressions And it's so natural to us that it doesn't even occur to us that there's an alternative to it. Um, There comes complete inner calmness. One of the the many uh, qualities that Swami Kriyananda had was that he did not react. He only responded. And, you know, he only responded according to what was the appropriate response. He did not respond according to past impressions. He just responded from inner calmness in the moment to what this situation actually required, which is why you you never could really predict how he would respond. Because if circumstances, if, if if the karmic needs of the moment were different, he would respond to the same situation in an entirely different fashion if anything there had shifted. Even that would be why he would never give the same talk more than once. Because in the moment, from the center of where he was, it would be given not from past impressions, but entirely from what was happening in the moment. It's very, um, it's very important. And not, I mean, I'm a quick reactor. This is not something I'm good at. So I'm really preaching to myself here. I don't want to have any pretense about this. But you, that inclination to respond first from whatever the, the momentum is, is uh, it's often gets you in trouble and it's not really spiritually correct. You may still choose to respond the same, but to choose to respond from a place of inner calmness is quite different than just to be moved on the wave of when this happens, this is what I do. And, you know, this is very, these are very important spiritual principles that we can start now. And eventually then they become completely smoothed Um, So we might as well kind of get going. That's what I was saying last week. He also says, creation exists only as waves of vibration on the ocean, the surface of the great ocean of spirit. When those waves become calmed in the consciousness of your, in your own individual consciousness, then even though creation continues to exist, he himself lives in the perfect calmness of the spirit. This is also answering a question that people often ask. When I drop out of creation, does creation go on? You know, people will, well, there's a whole philosophical schools that it only exists because we're perceiving it. But once again, Patanjali and all of Master's teachings tell us something completely other. The ocean is always there. And the waves will continue to go up and down. But if your wave just merges into the ocean, that doesn't mean there are no waves anywhere. It's not, it's a very important point because people imagine, 
you know, they, it, it, these are, these are one, among these things where people get a fragment of the, a fragment of a true principle, but then don't know exactly what to do with it. Now, let me just, let me think where I was going with it. Oh, yes. People begin to understand that they influence the conditions of their life. And people will use the phrase a lot, I create my own reality, which I, it sounds good, but it isn't true. <laughs> Um, what they're really trying to say is, um, I live inside my inner consciousness, and I can have, I, I can gain mastery over my inner consciousness. And of course, the vibrations of your consciousness will then have an effect on the world around you. Um, in Patanjali, he talks about when you have perfected ahimsa, perfect harmlessness then no enmity can arise in your presence. And Swami Kriyananda had this experience on a number of occasions when people were during this, especially the tempestuous early years, and people were, you know, they, would, they, 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 they made a big scene, I'm going to really tell Kriyananda off when I see him, and Swami would just sort of go find them. Yes? You had something to say to me? <laughs> and they always found it difficult. <laughs> invariably found it difficult to carry out the threat in the presence of. There was nothing to react to. I mean, even just in our own little lives, if somebody's very upset and you give them nothing to react to, I mean, genuinely, not merely suppress your own frustration, but are just genuinely um, open, it's very difficult to carry it on as intensely. But to say that we influence, that we have, have the potential to master our own experience of life is not the same as to say we create that reality out there. And people are always talking about creating their own reality. They'll even just offer it like an aphorism. Yeah, yeah, I know, I create my own reality. No, actually you don't. <laughs> you know, there's this huge reality and we are just simply fitting into it. This also comes back to what many of you know to be one of my pet themes in terms of what our personal responsibility as devotees of this path is, is to get people to understand that, no, you know, what you call yourself is not the uh, origin point, that there is this greater reality into which we must um, blend, mold, uh, melt, is actually the right word. And that's how we have to think about it. So when we cease to be... Um, bounced about by the waves on the ocean of the spirit and go into the calmness of the spirit, um, it, it doesn't, it still goes on. It's not so entirely dependent on our little ego. You know, the, the little self enters the great myself, but the great myself doesn't cease to exist. The sea exists without the waves, but they breathe not without the sea. That's how it's put in the samadhi poem. So he's saying that right here. So, even if you drop out, yes, it goes on. It goes on for a really long time. Okay, and I'll go on from there. 3.13 Thus has been described the transformation of a false reality into its changeless essence. Only spirit is real. The world we live in is an unreal manifestation of that consciousness. And then he says, as we dream at night and imagine so many things, God has dreamed this universe and the essence of everything will reveal, it to, reveal itself to us someday as but a dream of our own expanded consciousness. That's the point, expanded, not just every day. Um, 
I found this so interesting because he, you know, this is the did God create the world or did he become it? The, 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 the practical import of this one for us in our reality now is that the, trans, the, false, the so-called false reality is transformed into the changelessness but nothing new is added or nothing is actually taken away. And there, there is this, we're, we're captured. One of the really deep past impressions that we all carry is, is a constant sort of cause and effect relationship about things. That I'm standing here now and then I have to do this and then something will be different, then I'll do that and then something will be different, then I'll do this and something will be different. And we always imagine that we're, we have to move somewhere. And we, and we often see that movement as somehow um, away from where we're standing. You know, that when I get over there, that's when everything's going to be okay. And what we're understanding here is that right where we're standing, we're, we're looking out at creation and we're seeing it through the senses and through this deep identification with the physical body and all of its experiences, everything it's gone through, and that creates out of Satchitananda a false reality. And then, thus, gradually over time, as we overcome past impressions, as we become more identified with the cosmos, as all of those, everything is becomes smoothed and we're in a state of perfect inner calmness, then all of a sudden, that which was false, you know, reveals itself to have actually been eternity in disguise. And these are not ideas that you just kind of say, oh yeah, that's a good one, I'll do that. It's more like, it, it's fascinating to meditate on it. It's fascinating to meditate on it when something has pleased us enormously. It's fascinating to meditate on it when we're frightened or sad or something is, has really uh, contradicted our own inclinations. To just how, how deeply can we stare into that false reality or how, how powerfully can we beam the uh, light of the spiritual eye on it and see how we can transform it. I was going through something uh, at one point that I wasn't enjoying at all. And suddenly, just right in the middle of it, I heard myself say, thank you, like that. And I was sort of surprised myself. But my mind was, my spirit really was pushing, trying to push through, where is the good that's going to come through this? And, and, not because I, I saw it, but because I knew it was there. I just suddenly heard myself say that, which made me laugh, which helped really lift up the whole thing. Because it wasn't how I was feeling. But what I was feeling was a false reality, and something in you begins to assert it. I, the story I've told you many times, when I was deeply distressed over the suffering of people who were dear to me, and I heard the voice say to me, do you think this is happening outside the will of God? And I couldn't say that it was outside the will of God. I know for some people, they, they can fall below that. By the grace of God, I didn't. But you can't. Some people say, you know, this can't be God's will, and they, get, they lose faith. Fortunately, in the moment, I did not. But there it was. So, exactly the same situation, you see. But I'm thinking that something has gone terribly wrong, 
and then the gyanic question comes, but if this is the will of God, how can this be terribly wrong? And then all of a sudden one realizes that one is looking at a false reality. So even on that very mundane level, this is the marvelous thing you see about these scriptures. You think it's all about being able to look at this world and see nothing but light, life trons and light rays. But it's really how often are we looking at, at just the absolute circumstance of our lives. And we think it needs to be transformed in, in some material way. But often it's transformed merely because we realize this is a false reality I'm looking at. The idea that this is unwanted, the idea that now I am justified in feeling sad. It's not, it's not that these ideas can, sometimes they can, but it's not that they can always turn you away immediately, but it gives you something to do. It gives you something, a way to direct your energy. It gives you, it gives you weapons to fight the, the battle of Kurukshetra, basically. Because all those past impressions just kind of make us crazy. And we, if, we, if we don't want to be there, we have to have something that counters it. False reality transformed into a true reality. And of course, the, the idea of waking up from the dream is always a really nifty one. I really like waking up from the dream. It's nice to just contemplate death. I love to think about how completely dead we are when we're dead, in this sense, which is... Whatever it was, it just isn't anymore. It just simply isn't. You know, a soldier on the battlefield, a person today was the anniversary of the liberation of Auschwitz, I believe. You know, that's something to think about, 70 years ago. And, you know, but once it's gone, it's gone. People who'd even died, however they died, the gas chambers, they starved to death, they became ill. It's only a reality in the physical body. When they step out of the physical body, it's just not there anymore. It's just, it's just gone. So when, when we're in the midst of something that just seems so overwhelming, but we're just going to step out of it, just, just like that. We'll just go on to the next. It's not that we won't take with us our consciousness, but all the facts and circumstances just dissolve. I was also, uh, just in something I was reading today, Master was affirming how many times this planet, the civilizations on this planet have turned over. That's how Swami put it. The civilizations have turned over lots and lots of times. You know, now they're going in the bottom of the sea and finding these cities down there. And he was asserting, as Master asserted, that the whole story that Plato wrote about Atlantis just collapsing, he said that's pretty much exactly how it happened. That's how. I mean, just think of it. A whole civilization just goes, boom, you know, down to the bottom of the sea. And just the, the page is turned and it's on to something else. And for those of us who are attached to it, it's a big moment. But once we're in, even out of our physical bodies and not identified with that material plane, even in that moment it becomes less. It's fascinating, isn't it? Even that moment becomes what? Less. I mean, even as soon as you're out of your body, it's just... That was Swami's response to nuclear war. Whether a hundred thousand or a million of us all die at the same time or whether we dribble out a few at a time over many years, once you're in the astral world, it doesn't make any difference. It doesn't make any difference how you got there. You're just there. It's over. Incarnation done. Body finished. Time to go on. Not easy. I mean, no, by no means easy. But if you hold it clear... 
And if when you're not really struggling, you can hold it really clear, then when all the forces come to try to take you away from it, you at least have planted some roots, you know? So the tree that's being blown in the wind, if it has deep roots, it's not as likely just to collapse over. Collapsing over is no fun. (laughs) I was saying the other day uh, at Sunday service, um, I believe it was here. Anyway, it doesn't matter. Um, Swamiji was... Yes, I, did. I was talking about it here, but how Swamiji was saying that uh, the, the, the... No, I was trying to think what the original part of it was. Just give me a moment to hear. Oh, yes. The difference between stages of development when you're um, still ego-conscious is still just all on a spectrum of ego-consciousness, but the difference between ourselves and a master, that was the word, is infinite. Because you move from finite to infinite. So there's an infinite shift of consciousness. So waking up from sleep is, doesn't begin to account for it, to compare it, but it does give us the idea of how worlds can disappear. And that, that's where the sleep dream image is so vivid because when you're in that dream, it's, it's not a dream. It's so, I mean, it's so, I'm sure all of you go through it. I mean, this is something... If you dream, even occasionally, it's, it's, well, it's weird. There's no other word for it. You're just in one world completely, and then you're in another. I used to have this strange experience, which actually one person told me they used to have it too. I don't have it anymore. When I used to go into subconsciousness, into sleep, there would be this moment of transition where I would suddenly step into an ongoing story And I would step into this ongoing story and there would be this moment of confusion. Then I would remember that this is the world I live in when I'm asleep. And then I would go to sleep and then I would forget. And I could never actually connect them, but it would would be very active, very active, and then I would lose awareness. And it wasn't like I would then dream all night, but it was just that strange transition overactive imagination, some kind of actual business I was doing in the astral world or whatever it was, who knows. When I, when Swamiji and I were talking once about, he was saying, uh, sometimes people tell him that they, they dream about him. And he says often, the dream they tell him about, he has given them advice that he wanted to give them. But he said at least that he had no awareness of visiting them in their in their dreams. He also talked at one point about part of becoming greater and greater spirituality is that you know more about what you're doing. <laughs> I mean, that all parts of you become aware. But even Master talks in one of his conversations about how he, even his infinite consciousness was compartmentalized. That's the only way I can say it, to say it. It's number 99 in conversations. And that just, you know, it's a diffi- he said, it's a difficult role I play being human and infinite, essentially. I think he phrased it more delicately than that, but it was pretty close to it. It's a hard part, you know, because you're infinite, but you're not. You're also human. But uh, then in, in that conversation about the dreams and giving advice and so on, Swamiji, first I just asked him, you know, what is that? And then he answered it so interestingly, super consciousness never sleeps. That sleep is a quality of the physical brain and the physical body. 
that, that you know, superconsciousness doesn't get fatigued. It needs its eight hours of rest or anything like that. Superconsciousness is in a state of perfect wakefulness. So even because you and your brain have gone to sleep, your superconscious is not asleep. And as Swamiji also said, if your, as his, deep commitment is to helping people, that force of energy is still happening in his superconscious. And so even when his brain is asleep, if there's an opportunity to communicate something that would be useful, then you would be drawn to do it. Whether your ego self and your brain was aware enough aware of it or not, your overarching spirit would be. And somebody's, you know, need to be helped and Swamiji's desire to help would simply meet on another realm. I mean, I love these things because it helps us it helps us to be much more expanded in our self-definition and much more expanded in um, the, the ways of the universe and much, um, much less crushed when small aspects of our lives uh, just bend and twist and blow in the wind as they do all the time. Okay. <laughs> okay. So now we come to 314. Change resides only in prakriti, which means nature, which goes through dominant, dormant, emerging, and potential s- states. And then Swami starts, uh, the changes of nature are also far beyond our reckoning. He speaks of the seasons. You know, spring moves to summer, summer moves into autumn, autumn moves into winter. We just, we live this cycle all the time. Speaking of the Native Americans, you know, they were just sort of tuned into that um, magnificent flow of energy all the time. I, I read something so interesting, heard it in a book. It was about um, Crazy Horse. Yes, there's a very good book called The Journey of Crazy Horse. It's written by a modern Lakota Indian. I've only read it once because I couldn't bear to read it more than once. It was too, in the end, painful. But still, it's a beautiful story. Um, and... Uh, He was just, you know, just talking about once the, once the white people interrupted the migration of the buffalo and once the buffalo were slaughtered, just basically what that did to their life. That, that was really the end of their life because the buffalo was the key to their life. And one of the things that he just mentioned was, you know, they moved to the reservations and now they couldn't, the, their, their teepees were always made with buffalo hide. And they, you know, could we make them out of deer skin? And then eventually, could we make them out of canvas? But Crazy Horse mentioned this fact that the buffalo hide was so heavy and uh, constructed in such a way that when they made their teepees, because they lived in a, a cold winter place, no matter how much it blizzard, the, uh, the hides never flapped. And so in the middle of winter, the teepee was silent. And the deer hide wasn't strong enough, and the fabric flapped. So whereas they were accustomed to living in winter silence, when they made their teepees out of canvas, they were always living in, in this uh, chaos of noise as the canvas flapped and banged. Isn't that, I mean, like, how would we even know? And so, you know, it's like, well, just make them out of canvas. What difference does it make? But you know, they're, they're living this whole... A rhythmic reality 
feeling the power of all of, of these different forces in such a different way. Um, the story is really, uh, it's, it's tragic and noble and it's just everything. It's all things. It's, it, was very, it, was very, it was very interesting to realize how complicated the choices are even when you're trying to follow dharma. You know, what is dharma in such, in, in so many shifting ways? You know, you're the last, last fighting tribe. Everybody's going to be killed. What is the noble choice? To let everyone be slaughtered? To surrender everything that is your life and just preserve? It's just very, very complicated. Um, but I was thinking of it here in this context. You know, we see the advancing seasons. We live through the advancing seasons, but without any um, energy related to them. When I first moved out to Ananda Village from an urban area and really discovered the moon, that was really something to discover the moon. Because we lived, you know, we lived up at Ananda, Village, Ananda Seclusion Retreat. There was, I mean, there was nothing. There was no light. So whether the moon was up or down was just this huge experience, very practical and never, you could never not know what the moon was doing. And you live in the way we live. You know, every so often you say, oh, look, there's the moon. But it has, uh, except for, you know, a sense of it, it has no actual impact on our lives. Our lives progress exactly the same. That's the smallest, and even almost summer, winter. You know, it's, our social activities may be dictated by it, but our comfort level is hardly touched, especially with living here. Anyway, um, then uh, Swamiji talks about pralayas or destructions that may affect only one planet (laughs) or a small group of planets rather than the whole galaxy or even the whole universe. But then there are maha pralayas, which is when everything is withdrawn. I've heard uh, Swami Kriyananda and other Swamis talk about pralayas at different times. It's a word that I had heard before small pralayas, maha pralayas. Maha pralaya is the day and night of Brahma, when all of creation just is, how do you think of it? <laughs> Withdrawn, and all of our little, I, I sort of always have these pictures of everybody just kind of, you know, uh, rolling over themselves, you know, being sucked in like there's like some uh, Hollywood film. And I'm sure that they've done Indian epics where the night of Brahma comes and all the little actors are all rolling around and getting sucked into it. But what I enjoyed when I heard, and I don't have a specific memory of who was talking to whom, but I know Swami Kriyananda was talking to some other pundits or sannyasis somewhere. And they were just talking about these pralayas just so casually. Because from the perspective of eternity... You know, from the perspective of just creation's just endless flow, just in the same way, again, this is why Swami starts with, we go spring, summer, autumn, winter, we watch the life force come up, we watch the life force run itself out, we watch it pull back into its dormant state, this is the word he uses. Uh, Change resides only in prakriti, nature, which goes through dormant, emerging, and potential states. Change is in that reality because you also have the alternative which is the changeless. You have the changeless that projects itself out and so then it's dormant, emerging 
and then it goes into its potential. I don't know how to exactly define these exactly. But we watch it. Nature do this all the time and we don't really tune into it much. But what he's saying is that that's what happens in all of creation. And sometimes these little things happen and just one planet goes away. Master said a planet gets wiped out when it becomes entirely bad or sometimes when it becomes entirely good. And apparently this one is not going to either do either one. It's going to go through cataclysmic shifts, but it's not going to just um, disappear. It's going to become annoyed, as Swami says. <laughs> Divine Mother's going to shake, annoyed. Divine Mother's going to shake us off like fleas. <laughs> Gaia, Mother Earth, is just kind of a little annoyed, I think, with the way we're doing things. And she's, you know, she's breaking the climate. She's changing the weather patterns and... Some people say she's melting the ice. Some people say she's not melting the ice. But definitely things are different. And because we're out, you know, we're out of sync. And this, these, are, this is, these are living realities. You can't get out of sync with living realities without affecting them. These are not just inanimate objects that we can just keep shifting and shifting. This is all life force. So we'll see what happens. But I guess it's not going to go all the way to nothing. Okay. Prakriti or nature is withdrawn in the night of Brahma into latent or dormant state. In that state it still exists as do all the countless beings who have not yet attained their liberation. When a day of Brahma begins again everything is spewed out into manifestation once more to resume at the level of spiritual evolution it had attained at the onset of the last pralaya. Swami asked Master, you know, do you, if you get, if you have, you're not liberated when the day of Brahma is over, do you have to start all the way at one? Do you have to go back to the very beginning? And he was very reassured to know that you just get withdrawn at whatever level you are and you get to come out again. But imagine, the Master's right about this. They know all this. You know, from the perspective of eternity, they're able to just watch creation's molding furnace, glaciers of silent x-rays, burning electron floods, you know, just this whole uh, endless cycle and just see it so impersonally. And, and the time doesn't make any difference. You're standing at the center of the wheel and all of it is just the same. It's marvelous to contemplate. It has a, a nice humbling effect on the importance of you know, my little world. Many years ago, when I was uh, at Ananda Village in my office at the publications, and that little tiny spider was running all over my typewriter, very tiny spider, he was a really small spider, and he was running all over my typewriter with so much panache. He really was a spider of class. He was a mensch of a spider. And I was watching him, and I'm not fond of small creatures as a rule, and I really didn't like sharing my office with them. So I was contemplating sending him on to his next incarnation, <laughs> and I began to get into a relationship with him, and I wanted him to know how extremely vulnerable he was, you know, that at any moment it could be over for him, and he really ought to know that. Even though he seemed like a pretty proud guy, he wasn't nearly as powerful as he thought and then really I just saw Divine Mother's two fingers 
right over my head, just going like that, just waiting to just pick me up by the same exact thing and with the same, uh, just about as much energy as it would take me to crush the spider, which was that. She would just go, that would be it. You know, it's a big story that I've been living with so much panache, just gone like that. And it's not that, you know, we have to be morbid that way, but it's the truth. It really is the truth. And there you have it. You just have to think about it all the time. Reality is beyond our imagining. But then he says, change exists only in outward manifestation. The Supreme Spirit is ever-existing, ever-conscious, ever-new, and forever changeless. These are fabulous meditations. Just fabulous meditations. So just sit there in your meditation and try to find a point of reality that is so different than the one we live in that is just always, always. And then you imagine... Being, in, being incarcerated in Auschwitz and having the Russian soldiers come and liberate you, but spirit is always changeless. To have finally become President Obama and be inaugurated as the first black man to be the President of the United States and have the whole world going crazy at his first inauguration, and the spirit is changeless. Someone you love has passed over into the astral world. Everything in your world is turned upside down, but the spirit is changeless. It helps. Not always. I have a little note, one of my multiple notes, that says, uh, whenever you have a mood, you know, contemplate the fact that the mood will eventually shift. But you are never, you are always the same. It's just because, you, you know, when the mood is there, you, the mood is you. And you think it's the only reality. But, but all moods will shift. But you will never shift. You, your true reality. That's why these, you know, these meditations help you. Because then in the critical moment, some little tiny piece of it comes up and taps you in your tormented little brain and says, guess what? Think differently. Okay. 3.15. The succession of changes in nature is a stimulus to evolution. Hmm. He says, evolution is far, far from the accident that it was claimed to be by Darwin. It is motivated from within by an irresistible impulse in the very atom to grow toward greater and greater self-awareness. That's also within us, again, we're drawn upward from our own soul. Um, the, the jiva, which is us, just moves um, from lower levels to higher levels. We're always exploring. I mean, when you see dogs are such a marvelous uh, personification of, of what's going on with all of us because they're always so eager. Dogs are just... I'm not a dog person. I'm not really much of an animal person at all, really. But you know, they just, you, every single day they go out and they're so eager. Even if you're taking them on the same walk that they've always been on, they act like they've never seen it before and they're just so wildly enthusiastic about every part of it and they're sniffing and running and pulling on the leash and trying to get there. And it's just like they're just trying to push the boundaries of their experience all the time, aren't they? And you see monkeys, they're always just trying to do that. I mean, some animals are more placid and less rajasic in their interests 
And, uh, dogs are so rajasic. That's why they're such a good example because that's really what we're doing all the time. We're always pushing. We're always trying to find out something more, have a new experience. We are impelled from within. Even if that experience is one of how depressed can I be, how, how suppressed can I be, how frightened can I be, but we're always, there's something in us that's always pushing us forward. And that's, that's what our evolution really is, is an evolution of greater and greater awareness. And the different forms that we see, the way um, he, he describes it here, let me see how he has it. Um, the different forms that we see in nature are just to give the ever-expanding awareness a greater and greater scope. And that's why they look progressive. But it's not that the physical world is developing in that sense. It's that there are progressive potentials for expressing self-awareness and the jiva just keeps moving through all of those forms until it reaches its limit. And what makes the human body um, so valuable and so much more valuable than any other form is because this nervous system can perceive infinity whereas none of the other nervous systems can. That's how Master put it. So even if the whales and the dolphins have a better sense of community than we do, <laughs> and even if human beings are the only ones that regularly go to war against their own people and lots of other things, nonetheless, what makes us advanced is not the actual awareness or lack of it among the masses, but the fact that you can be inside of this body and have and infinite consciousness. Now, I just read something interesting in all my files. Um, Swami said that in higher ages, animals could be self-realized. And that was Lahiri working on a technique to, lim- uh, uh, to liberate animals directly is based on a higher age. Isn't that an interesting thought? And Swami actually repeated the um, assertion that Ramana Maharshi himself made that the cow that was so devoted to him that he actually liberated the cow. Yeah, who's to say? There's the, the legend. Is it a legend? Is it, is it the truth that King Bharat, who was Rama's brother, who had to run the kingdom when Rama was exiled, that he became very attached to a pet deer, and the story is told that when he died... His last thought was who was going to take care of that deer. And then he incarnated, he he then was reborn as a deer. But the story is told that that deer was very spiritually inclined and spent all its time out in the forest hanging out with great sages in the ashrams. And that then from the deer's body, that was Bharat's last life. From From the deer's body, that was Bharat's last life. This is all just, I read this just today in my, my file called Animals. <laughs> um, just fascinating that, you know, it, it, it's helpful to me also because sometimes I've been a little too quick to dismiss certain possibilities as sentimental. Master told Dr. Lewis and Mrs. Lewis that their cat would be reborn as a human. Master used to visit in their home a lot, and he used to spend time with that cat. That cat was brought into the presence of an avatar, and its evolution was highly accelerated. He didn't say the cat would be liberated. He just said the cat would go from being a cat to a human. What kind of human? I don't know. 
Okay, we're going to have a break. Small pralaya. Just, we're just going <laughs> to dissolve the class right for the moment. Okay. Um, I, I got into a conversation with a friend last week when I mentioned that Swami had said to me one time, it would be good for you to learn to think in longer rhythms. Mm-hmm. And then I started talking about, well, how I had been working with that all these years, and now I was thinking, I'm kind of trying to plan for next incarnation, and, you know, and uh, she said, well, you've got to get out of here in this lifetime. Why are you thinking like that? And I, and I know, so I wondered if you could comment on that, because, sure, I don't want to think I can't make it in one life, because I, but also just a small amount of introspection <laughs> reveals to me that the possibility is, would be a, that God would have to come down and liberate me for me to get out of here in one incarnation. So I'm kind of looking for a, a healthy place to hold that thing. Um, first of all, thinking in longer rhythms doesn't just mean planning for multiple incarnations. <laughs> it also it also means not becoming so obsessed with the moment like I was talking about moods and disappointments and it, the, the longer rhythm he's talking about is 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 a smaller longer rhythm you know just recognize that everything is changed and everything comes and goes and so we don't have to be quite so worried or sad, or depressed, or discouraged, or any of those things, because let's think in the longer rhythm. This, this is all, everything's going to shift. But it also does mean, and I find it useful to think in terms of incarnations. It's for me, multiple incarnations is an incentive to try to face it in the moment. That's how I think, that's how, the, the best way the concept of reincarnation serves me is face it now or face it now. Because if, if I don't think in terms of reincarnation, you think that you might get away with it. You know, if, if, if I don't get caught, then I've gotten off free. And you don't realize that you will, it, it will happen to you later and you won't know why because of what you didn't resolve now. So it, it, it has given me a little bit of courage and perseverance. Um, the whole question of whether or not we we want to think about getting liberated in this lifetime. I have found that m- my peers and friends have wildly different attitudes toward that. And many people feel like whoever was speaking to you, that it's absolutely essential to believe that we can get free right now. And that anything less than that is just, they get very intense about it. So I don't really have conversations about this anymore because people are very intense about it. And Swami himself has said, you know, at least become a Jivan Mukta. And he's, he's put it like that. I personally have never found it helpful to think that way. It just does not serve me. And so I have taken exactly the opposite point of view. It'll work itself out. I don't have to be tense about this. You know, if I'm going to get out this lifetime, great. If not, I'm doing the best I can. I, it's not like I'm slacking off, but I feel a little bit like you feel, and I've said this many times. 
it looks like Swami if it's the end. But I'm not going to say that. I just, I don't feel myself to be that free. And so I feel false just bucking myself up with this big energy. I work a lot better just relaxing and moving on. Now, I have found confirmation in this somewhere in the Bhagavad Gita commentary that Swami wrote, where I don't remember now, but he did write something essentially, which was, just don't worry about it. You know, it's going to happen on its own time, and it won't, it'll, it'll make you too self-preoccupied to think about it. So that, that's my truth. But he himself said, at least become a Jivan Mukta. And so other people have picked up that one. I just go to the true teaching as individual. And my, my criteria is, is there more that I could do? Not more that, I'm, that I might do, but more that I actually can do. And if there is more than I, that I can do, I try to do it. And if there's not, what am I going to do with... Um, whipping myself from behind in order to get out in this lifetime. And I, I don't know, I, I was having this perception not too long ago that uh, I don't exactly know how to say it. I'm just, I'm still really connected to this plane of consciousness. Um, I, I'm not, well, Shivani said once, don't even think about trying to overcome a fault until you're absolutely disgusted with it. <laughs> Just don't bother because you won't. And there's, there was a certain, I saw a certain vairagya. I saw the potential of a certain vairagya, which is a real disinclination for this world. And I was experiencing a certain vairagya, and I realized, oh, that's not my normal bhav. My normal bhav is, you know, it's all going fine. Let's just do what we can. But that doesn't mean that I'm not serious, but I could see the certain level of vairagya. Maybe it'll come later. You know, we still have a lot of work to do. I have a lot of work to do. I have a lot of things that I have to do right now, and it's just not going to serve me to think about not doing them. And then that, but that vairagya comes when, I mean, like Swami, at the end of his life, you see, was very different. At the end of his life, he was very, very letting it go. But for much of his life he was quite intent on it. But it was all of a piece. He was also intent on it because he wanted to finish the story. No, that's not true. It's not correct. Um, Again, I was reading this today. Swamiji sort of said that he was trying to draw this distinction that he cared about everybody, that he really wanted to help people but what he was really doing was serving his guru. And that came out as spreading his teachings. But inside himself, he was serving his guru. In other words, he was not defined, attached in any way to us getting it right, or even to our suffering. He was serving his guru. That was, that was the only place in which he was, going to be, he was going to be connected. Then he would commit himself and do all of this work and take care of all the people that, Swami, that Master gave him to take care of and literally give his life for us and weep for our sufferings and everything. But his point of identification and attachment was only to Master as a disciple. That was like Mother Teresa. 
oh, you're doing so much good work for the poor. She said, I'm not helping the poor. I'm doing what Jesus asked me to do. This just didn't know there's a world of difference between those things. So all of those, you know, those are the subtleties that you have to work with, we all have to work with. So forget the timeline and just ask yourself, am I doing everything I can do? People come and ask me about their spiritual life. I say, you know, are you taking a free ride? Are you operating at 100%? And that, again, that 100% has to be your actual real 100%, which is why the I'm going to get out in this lifetime does not work for me. Because then I just start going like this and trying to be something I'm not. Whereas if I just try to live in my own reality and elevate it as I can actually elevate it, uh, then I just, it's their problem, basically. Pardon me? It's worse than a distraction for me. It's a, it's, it's a crazy-making concept. But everybody's different, you see. Some people have to be there. They know that unless they motivate themselves that way, they're not going to go forward. Others, like me, know that unless you calm yourself down, you're just going to be a nervous wreck all the time. It just depends on whether, what your totem animal is. Mine is a squirrel. <laughs> okay. Did you have a question, Adam? Yeah, along those same lines, when Tom mentioned Swami talking about longer rhythms, I thought of him um, as one of the techniques he used uh, at the dentist when he didn't take Novocaine was to think about, well, what can this be? You know, 20, 30 minutes and how long have I lived and how many incarnations? What would you say about identifying that strongly with longer rhythms that you can pull yourself away from the current, you know, well, that's Pain. why it was his last life and not mine. <laughs> Example A, because he could separate himself so much from his body that he could... I mean, the most amazing one of that example was when he was having the hip operation and they did it with the spinal and the anesthesia wore off while they were still sewing him up. And he knew that if they knew that the anesthesia had worn off, they would give him, they would put him under completely. And he didn't want to be put under completely. So he lay there while they sewed him up. I don't know, I mean, significantly large portions of what they were sewing up. And not only did he endure it, but he obviously endured it without flinching. Because it wasn't until, as he said afterwards, when the anesthesiologist came to speak to him to see how he was doing and and the and Swami was completely recovered from the anesthesia that the doctor realized that it must have worn off in the operating room and Swami said the man went really pale and kind of leaned against the wall I mean you know that's grounds for malpractice of course not from Swami but the doctor I don't mean that the doctor was only afraid for himself he was just a little dismayed because he realized what that meant. But everything. Yeah, I think that's great. That would be a moment when you'd say, how long can this last? I mean, but it's, it's a very useful technique. I mean, I use it whenever I have to have any little tiny thing done. How long can this last? And you realize, no, it's not going to last very long. When I, was, I was in my 30s before I had the nerve to have my ears pierced because I was such a chicken. And I, I finally saw babies having their ears pierced. And babies went, ah! And I thought, gee, that's not very long. <laughs> but 
identify with a longer rhythm. Okay. Did you, did, is there anyone here with a question? No? Okay. Oh, yes, that's right. I thought I knew there was someone else with their hand up. I just came across last week a section in Master's book. It's the third one, from uh, which one is published by SRF, and the title said, How to Prepare for the Next Reincarnation. Uh-huh. <laughs> very good. And it was very interesting. It was rather a very short section. <laughs> it was not a full chapter. It was only maybe uh, one or two pages. But the essence, what I understood, the essence was just love God. Try to include God in your life as much as possible. Think about him. Think about her, divine mother or divine father. And constantly just focus on God, whatever you do. And um, again, in that section uh, was this repetition, seek first God and then all the others. And so the whole section was just about that. So I thought maybe that helps you. I don't know. Okay. You know, I've joked a lot about, pass it back to Chris in the back. I've joked a lot about the fact that I prepare for it by trying to, to, to imagine my childhood with the consciousness I have now. And I hope that helps. Somehow I feel like that's the best I can figure out. And that was when Tondava wrote me that wonderful poem about when I am uh, young again. I won't be. <laughs> I'll be an old woman. Yes. The way I look at it is once you've taken discipleship with a guru, you've handed over the responsibility for the management of your karma to them. And if it takes you one, two, or three, or maybe ten lifetimes, they've got a plan. They'll work it out. They're going to mold your karma that you came to them with in the best way to get you there as quickly as possible. And you can cooperate more, you can cooperate less but it's still going to have to play itself out. And you just have to trust that they're going to do their job. Yeah, it's up to them. Department, yeah. <laughs> your department is to do your kriyas yeah. and, and practice devotion, and they'll take care of the rest. But that's, why, that's what I say. It's their problem. Guys, I'm here. I'm doing what I can. You know, what do I know? And partly, I just feel like, what do I know? I just, I don't have any idea what this, that is, it's really about. But again, you see, this is very personal because many people whom I love and respect greatly um, do not feel this way. They take it completely differently. So it's very, very individual. You have to, you have to really come to peace with it one way or another. Okay? It was a pretty harmonious discussion, wasn't it? Yeah. <laughs> nobody, nobody took great exception to it either way. Okay. There was one more sentence in um, number 315, which it says, this was about evolution, where I was talking just before the break. Even the vicissitudes of bad karma can be beneficial, for they force people to rethink their priorities. And, you know, that is, it can't be repeated often enough, because when you're not in the midst of, of calls it bad karma. Bad karma means tough karma, challenging karma, karma that greatly disturbs your peace of mind. It's very easy to be very philosophical about it. Um, but when it actually really, you know, takes you down like an alligator in a pond, it's, 
it's very good if you have thought lots of times about, you know, everything can be turned. This reality, this passing reality can be transformed into an eternal reality. And the solution to suffering is always greater self-awareness. And tests are an impetus for spiritual growth. And, and, and it's extremely important. To, to, this is really one of those ones that you really have to practice when it's easier. And, and this is one of those ones where every small attitude is a real enemy. And the, the cultivating of the calm, the ability to be calm in the moment and really try to see the bigger picture when things are happening is what really serves you well. That and the masters all say the regular practice of meditation. And they all, this is one of the places where they put group meditation. That group meditation is really beneficial when um, tests come, because especially the habit of group meditation, because it keeps you in that rhythm. And so that when tests come and you're not able to concentrate or you're feeling rebellious against what God is giving you, if you have that habit of just stepping back into the place where the vibrations are stronger, it'll, it'll, it's a fortress, Master said, that helps protect you. Our Sunday services, regular attendance at Sunday services, at classes, at satsangs, at whatever it might be, where you, you repeatedly, and now with the online community, you can actually attend long meditations online it's, it's really quite astonishing. And I know from my own experience, I've never actually meditated online, but I know that real-time shared consciousness is, is a, a reality, that time and space does not exist. And if you are anywhere in the world simultaneously in consciousness with people who are uplifted, you can, you can feel it. We used to watch Swamiji's Satsangs in real time, and then sometimes you would see them later in recorded time, and it was really, I have to say, a world of difference for all of those who are watching this not in real time, but this is nonetheless, it's, it's, it's a very real thing. And so, um, the, you know, to be, to be ready, because we don't know. In, in the play that we did oh, this last weekend, two weekends, we've done it, of the stories of the disciples of Master and their lives together, and Kamala Silva, who was a devoted disciple of Master, who met Master when she was just 18 or 19. And she, she had the courage to pray. And the way she put it, I love the way she put it. She, she prayed to Master that all her karmic debts be settled. She wanted all her karmic debts to come due. I'd always heard it. She wanted to just work out her karma, but I like the way she actually expressed it better. She wanted all her karmic debts to be paid in this lifetime so that she could just neutralize it all and come free. I just, the concept of karmic debt is something, it's, it's very interesting to contemplate. If you, you know, I know in my lifetime I've you know, trampled on people on many occasions without meaning to, and people get their feelings hurt. I get my feelings hurt. People do things that, that are not in tune with my inner reality, and either, either because they're in a dissonant place or they're in a perfectly fine place, but what they do is just not in tune with my reality and I get my feelings hurt. And then uh, I'm experiencing that pain. But you're never going to experience that pain unless there is something karmic that requires you to experience that pain. 
It's a debt. It's just as simple as that. I was talking to someone recently, too, about a great difficulty that that person experienced in their life. And, I, you know, I just said, you can re- reason out all the facts you want, but it's clearly a karmic debt. Just somehow pain was inflicted and pain has to be inflicted back on you. It's just, just like that. Or, or qualities in your consciousness need to be um, created, and so you're going to be squished until they happen. Remember the story in um, The Path where Swamiji got engaged in um, a, a movement within Mount Washington. He got sucked onto the wrong side of the question and was supporting people who were really being very negative and not really being very helpful. And when the whole thing came out in the open and Master um, was um, scolding the people who'd been involved, he scolded Swami most of all. And Swami really had had a rather peripheral role in the thing. But Swami noticed that he reacted in, in the wrong way to being scolded, that he was resistant to Master scolding rather than receptive. And so later he wrote to Master, scold me more often. And you see, you could also write a long justifying letter about how I was misunderstood. But it's needing to be balanced. There's resistance, let's call it that. In that case, there's resistance, there's pride, there's a sense of justice that has to be fulfilled. And all Master saw was ego that needed to be burned out. That's a karmic debt, really. It's like ego needs to be burned out. There's a commitment to ego, it has to be burned out. Suffering, loneliness, misunderstanding, everything. It's just, it's all debts that have to be paid. You want it all come to zero. Swami says that over and over. It's so hard to really get it. It all has to balance back to zero. It, it just, no matter how you think, it's all going to be working out this time. And that was Swami's comment. He had a dream about being on some other planet or some island. He said he had the dream often for a while and then in this particular time he came closer to the island in his dream and as he put it he said he uh, he remembered that there had been some very sweet romantic uh, entanglement that's what he remembered in the dream and then someone said to him well how did it end oh he said tragically as all human love does (laughs) he just said it so casually and I thought wow Tragically, as all human love must. Now, he doesn't mean that you, you love someone then you hate them. It's just that that expectation of perfect fulfillment eventually has to be balanced by the realization that only God will fulfill it. Now, it doesn't, you know, these are all very sensitive issues because we don't get that from being told. But, but the, when we enter into these realities... We have to, as, as much as we can, we have to keep a bigger perspective. And, and Swami's been very emphatic. That doesn't mean that you reject this world and fold your arms and refuse to participate and call it ugly. That doesn't get you out either. You have to give your whole heart to it. But, well, Swamiji gave his whole heart to all of us and gave everything he could to help us. But the only thing he identified with was being a disciple of Master. And everything else came out of being a disciple of Master. So if a life is given to us, we have to live it appropriately. We don't get free of it by not living it. But we also have to identify 
with the power behind it. That's what all of this has been about today. You know, we're, we're in the whole section of this book where we have gone out of this world into samadhi, into cosmic consciousness, into the smoothing of all our impressions, you know, just all this stuff, which we can't necessarily live there all the time, but even in the midst of this, as Swami said elsewhere, we should try to be a little other-minded, which is a sweet way to put it. Just always be conscious of the other reality. That this is very sweet and it's wonderful while it's happening, and then it won't. Easy to say, hard to do, but it's either now or now. <laughs> and it doesn't actually, we all, everyone thinks it makes you less able to savor the moment, but it actually makes you more able to savor the moment because you're not so afraid of it passing. Because even if we're not consciously afraid of it passing, underneath we know. And so the more we can overcome all that fear, the more then everything can be what it's meant to be. So on that cheery note, unless there's a question or a comment, we'll call it a night. Okay, so tonight we went through um, the last one we did. So what did I do? Where did we start? We started at 3.11 and we finished at 3.15.